Thank you for listening to this omnibus edition of this podcast. I'm Toby Haydoke. We're going to do an entire story that we can't see, bar clips and telesnaps. My special guest is the deputy editor of Doctor Who magazine. He'll take the low road, I'll take the high road, and together we'll get to our happy times and places. Well, hello there. Hello. I've been asking friends of mine to choose a Doctor Who story for me to watch. And as I'm watching it, they're going to tell me their favourite things about it. But before I begin, uh, I have to introduce to you, the listener and or viewer, uh, who my special guest is. And I'm curious, he's one of the loveliest and most cheerful souls in the whole of the world of Doctor Who. I'm curious why he's chosen this particular story. Now, it could be that he's being pesky and has gone, I'm going to choose one, it's really hard to talk about. Or he may have a genuine affiliation with it. Or or he may have been, as part of this process, uh, perhaps as curious about the story as I. Let's see uh, who our guest is. It's here, who our guest is, and the reasons for choosing the story that you know. Well, I know too, it's the Highlanders. Why has our special guest chosen the Highlanders. Hello Toby, Peter Ware here, Deputy Editor of Doctor Who magazine. The story I've chosen for you is I think one of the lesser known stories in, in the Doctor Who canon. Um, it's completely missing from the archives uh, but if it was ever to be returned I think it would very very quickly become a firm fan favourite because of the performances of the lead actors. The story I'm talking about is The Highlanders. 1966 to 67, Patrick Troughton's second story as the Doctor. It's just superb, vastly underrated. So okay, he's he's chosen it in order to um, to uh, convert us all to the cause. It's, well, look, I'll talk about it as we go because I'm slightly worried about um, how much I'll have to say. This could be for you lot a sweet release. Uh, <laughs> right. So, let's do this thing. Uh, I have a recon of the story lined up. Uh, but uh, I know from correspondence a lot of people just um, try and conjure the story or just take my word for it. But if you are watching along, we're going to press play in three, two, one, and go. It's uh, still strange having uh, having the Hartnell titles on a on a Troughton story. Um, although the first Troughton solo episode I saw, it's another story. Will uh, uh, is uh, Underwater Menace three, but that is was such is such a hallowed experience for me that uh, uh, it's 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 still quite special. Um, but I think it was actually during the making of this story that they filmed the titles, uh, but they uh, they didn't th- uh, put them in until the Macra Terra, not as like a book that was published when I was uh, younger, said it was ironically the face of the Doctor first appeared in the title of The Faceless Ones. That was a fib. Um, now, I-, I understand this opening sequence from... Uh, I seem to recall an interview with Hugh David. They were they were quite ambitious with it. I don't I don't know if it was as uh, as as 
detailed in the script, but they did something with it to give it a bit of bit of welly to start with. Oh, and we have a couple of the clips, of course. Um, though this recon's also using a bit f from the war games, um, a bit of Jamie and the red coat. Uh, so yes, we have we have a couple of clips of these from the Australian sensors, and it's all we've got. Well, apart from the telesnaps which uh, when Hugh David did a, 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 an interview in a Doctor Who magazine summer special, Hugh David, the director, it was one of the most exciting things imaginable because there was a kind of... And Hugh has some off-screen stills. We didn't even call them telesnaps in, in those days. I like the way that the gun of the red coat is sticking out of the ground. That's quite sort of a forlorn and bloody image. Um, not a bloody image, but uh, you know, a hasty battlefield... Uh, memorial <laughs> in a way um oh and we also have uh a quick shot of uh the tardis because uh there's a little bit of footage of director F future director fiona Cop coming snapping with uh the, the clapperboard because she was a production assistant on this um that had been saved for her. Now, I have a feeling the story behind that is, I could be wrong, that it was saved by John Nathan Turner um, because they were great friends, um, which when we think of the wanton and terrible destruction of Doctor Who in the 1970s, um, uh, I think John Nathan Turner was probably sorting through existing film from missing episodes. <laughs> uh, I went, oh, here's my mate. Fiona, I'll save that bit and let's chuck the rest. I, I've got that can be the only reason I think that that that, that still exists, but I could be wrong because um, I've not looked into that, even though I have sniffed around missing episodes quite a lot because they are to me one of the most fascinating aspects of the whole of Doctor Who history. But even then, nobody really talks about the the Highlanders apart from the fact that when I was younger, there was a rumor flying about that the Highlanders 2 and 4 existed. It was it was about the same time as uh, Faceless Ones 3 and Evil of the Daleks 2 came back. There was a couple of, certainly one magazine I seem to recall, um, indicating that you know the, somebody had the Highlanders 2 and 4 and were using it as a bargaining chip. Um, oh, there was, I mean, it, it wasn't just the birth of the internet that called all sorts of, caused all sorts of rumours to fly about. I like the beginning of this, the, you know, the, the beleaguered quartet of Highlanders um, hiding out in a, in a cottage, having had a, you know, a bit of a, having to fight their way to retreat. One of them is injured. Um, uh, William Dysart here comes back uh, much more memorably as Regan in uh, the Ambassadors of Death, which when I get to in this process, I will have a, a great time talking about. And I will, I'm sure, not overlook the contribution of Fraser Hines, uh, whose first story this is, who looks very different uh, he, and sounds very different because uh, he adopts a more sing-song Highland lilt that then having... Uh, been been asked and elected to stay on decided to make his accent more tv scottish which i think was wise um so i was saying about yes hugh david did an interview with doctor who magazine and it was a it was a 
it's quite an exciting period for the for the magazine i seem to recall and they they started to sort of look a bit further afield a few directors like michael bryant and you know all the producers and people had been interviewed a few times and some of the writers but but some of the more obscure shall we say uh directors um like hugh david who who'd only done a couple of stories in the 60s this and fury from the deep um they started to interview them uh and uh, hugh david had off-screen stills uh of uh the highlanders uh and, and it said it's with regret he doesn't have them from his second story because off-screen stills of Fury from the Deep would have been so exciting. Um, and they and they didn't print them in episode like they did later in the Doctor Who classic comics and things and in the magazine where they printed them episode by episode. They just sort of printed a selection of them. Um, and it was amazing. And of course, they didn't sort of explain what they were either. Uh, they just sort of went, well, here they are. So of course people were going, oh God, you know, were these how to, how could these possibly exist? Uh, <laughs> I remember that happened with um, again one of one of the magazines. Uh, it, Robert Jewell had taken some off-screen pictures of the Feast of Stephen, uh, and uh, they went uh, they they printed them, but they but there was a kind of an how can these possibly exist? Well, you know, you got them off Robert Jewell. We should neglect to say that because it's more exciting if we. I th I think I remember that right that they didn't actually say I could be wrong, uh, maybe it was my imagination, sort of going doing a bit of wishful thinking. But I'm sure I'm not sure they did say anyway. Uh, there's nothing like the sniff of a missing episode existing. Um, I love I'm loving all of this stuff in the cottage, um, uh, and whilst James' accent is a bit more. TV Scots, I think his 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 costume becomes a bit, you know, he he has the kilt, but he divests himself of of a lot of the rest of it, and so him and Alexander dressed the way they are here, and it, they're very grubby. Uh, is uh, is uh, is pretty exciting. Is is you know, it's pretty di different. It gives it that this this feels sort of real and genuine. And Hugh David, I I I believe was a was a was a very good director we've got very little to go on well we haven't got anything to go on in terms of doctor who he was still working um when he did that interview and indeed when he died it was, it was shocking actually when you think about it i think he was about 60 he was he wasn't 70 65 67 when he died rex tucker who was great friends with him who directed the gunfighters and was there at the birth of doctor who uh, did his obit for the stage, I remember. Um, and Hugh David, in his interview with Doctor Who magazine, said he was there at the genesis of Doctor Who because he was around. He was a mate of Rex Tucker's, was actually offered the part of the Doctor and turned it down. I think he also claimed to have come up with the name of Doctor Who. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, uh, but it was a really, really exciting interview, and he was he was a, a, a really interesting character. I've actually listened to a bit of it since because. Patrick Mulcairn, who did the interview, was very kind enough to share it with us when we were preparing the Fury from the Deep um, commentary and documentary. Um, and, and fantastic that people like Patrick did that work early on with people like Hugh David, who, who, who you know, who died a relatively short time after at a relatively young age. That's what I was saying. Jerry Davis, who was the writer of this, with Elwyn Jones, who actually, it seems, didn't do really any work on it at all uh and 
Innes Lloyd, the producer, who died within a week of each other, Jerry Davis and Innes Lloyd, were in their 60s. They seemed like so, such old men at the time. Uh, I have mates in their 60s. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm loving this uh, stone cottage set. It, it, it seems really like a very last resort I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm liking the atmosphere of, uh, of the, the besieging um, and I like this TARDIS crew um, I've, I've yapped through the Doctor saying I would like a hat like that which is Patrick Troughton's attempt to give the Doctor a catchphrase which I'm secretly pleased never caught on he does do it again in episode 4 um, but can you imagine how tedious it would have got if by the t- <laughs> if uh, if by the war games <laughs> still there's so many different hats in the war games I would still like a hat like that um, so and, it, and and because castists uh, 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 like the, the, were done in order of appearance in things like episode guides and stuff Alexander William Dysart you it was sort of set up to maybe think make me think that he was a, a character that was in it all the way through uh and yet actually that's it that's it for william dyser that's it for alexander he did um so uh, yes and, and anybody familiar with his contribution to ambassadors of death might have thought he was playing a relatively decent part and he was uh, it was frustrating with him because he's so good in ambassadors of death and he turns up in survivors um, and then sort of disappeared. And um, if I know now what I knew then, there were ways I could have probably got in touch with him. And I, I, I know a couple of friends who got signed pictures of him, I think, but never was never interviewed um, about his doctor, but died in something like 2002. So he was around and is no more, um, uh, but a, a very strong and capable and charismatic actor. Uh, and a genuine toughness about him uh, in Ambassadors of Death that therefore I think would have worked very well for for Alexander here. Now, uh, Peter, you know, suggests that um, that this is one of the least known Doc Two stories and that sort of ties in slightly with, I've I've asked my patrons on my, my internet uh, to, um, uh, to to sort of write in and and ask me stories and uh, ask ask me questions about the stories that I'm that that I'm watching uh, and uh, uh, t- only two people have um, Tim Dickinson and Nathan Moore and they're both sort of along the same lines. Tim Dickinson says, "Is there any Doctor Who story?" that uh, after being a fad for a good while, that you still can't recall what happens in it at the click of a finger. For me, it's the Highlanders. Uh, uh, for me, the Highlanders is one of a handful. And I'm, I, I, I have a, a lot of uh, sympathy with that view in that, yeah, this is this and maybe the smugglers and the savages all totally missing are the stories I probably know the least. The Mythmakers and the Massacre are equally 
sort of you know his, historicals which which tend to get talk, talked about less um and exist less as our as our view of what doctor who is um but uh, i mean those the, the myth makers and the maths because are, are both very special and very different uh and i've certainly given them a lot more attention this i've probably listened to the soundtrack once maybe twice i've watched the recon once um and i've read the book so that's four experiences of the story of the actual televised story i would say three this will be my second time watching a recon of it um so yeah my th my third fourth time of experiencing the highlanders which in experiencing of doctor who <laughs> and there's some there's some major works of art i've never availed myself of and yet i feel i've underrepresented the highlanders in doctor because this will only be the fourth time i've experienced it and unlike you dear listener um you know you can you can appreciate the story and everything it has to offer because you're not having to multitask and talk through it as well so i'm having to sort of remind myself of what the highlanders is whilst not fully paying attention to it because i'm having to entertain you if entertaining you is what i'm doing hannah gordon uh who uh uh, I was listening to a podcast the other day, um, an excellent podcast called The A to Z of Television Drama. And why did Hannah Gordon come up? She was in something and uh, they, they went, the, the woman who killed Victor Meldrew, because she did. I mean, she's got other claims to fame. Um, she was a very well-known uh, television face, stunning woman, beautiful f uh, visually and vocally, um, uh, Hannah Gordon, um, who... Uh, she, yeah, she ran over Victor Meldrew in the last episode of uh, One Foot in the Grave. Spoilers. <laughs> and I'm aware you have to say this now because I once got, uh, I wrote Gareth Thomas's obituary for The Guardian and uh, and and in the first paragraph you sort of, you know, sum, sum up his association with Blake Seven by saying... Um, uh, uh, you know he played Blake and he left and then came back and died in the last episode where everyone was killed off and I got told off on Facebook by somebody saying uh, I haven't done my Blake 7 marathon yet and you've just spoiled the end for me thanks very much it's like um, I mean it was in 1981 <laughs> you know how long is the statute of limitations on spoilers last but with uh, so yes um but anyway, so sorry if I've just ruined the death of one foot in the grave. Although part of me now talking goes, how you know, I don't know how many people listening, on you know, younger people who came to Doc Two through the newer series, for whom one foot in the grave is also an ancient televisual screed rather than, as I sort of think of it, a, a relatively recent television show. I'm sure it's not. I'm sure it's several decades away from where I am now. But I don't think of it like that. And if 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 you think that seems impossible, you are obviously still in the first flush of youth and you must appreciate it. Um, I'm liking the look of this from what one can, can glean from it. It's a, but I've always sort of thought of this as a sort of bedfellow of the smugglers in that unlike the sort, sort of lyrical historicals of, say, John Lucarotti or the very cleverly uh, amusing ones of of Donald Cotton that that these are much more sort of boy's own adventures 
um, you know, it's sort of daring do. It's it's literary types, but of a of the sort of thing you'd read a, a comic strip of in the Eagle or or have as a sort of Sunday afternoon series. And uh, you know, and so I remember there was a product. There was Moonfleet was on when I was younger. The, a modern version. Patrick Troughton and Fraser Hines had been in a version of Moonfleet called Smuggler's Bay. Uh, now apparently this was Fraser's idea. This bit that I'm watching now, which is the which is the hanging scene where the actors all stand on their uh, stand on their toes in order to suggest they're being you know pulled up by the neck, uh, and be- and it's pretty grim. And because it's pretty grim, the Australian censor cut it, and so we have it. So uh, it's another moving picture that we fortunately have from the Highlanders, which otherwise is a gone. Um, so yeah, I think I think of this not in the same, well, not in the same, um, in the same grouping, but also not in the same league as the uh, as the, perhaps the earlier Hartnell historicals, which I I view in a sort of much more lofty as as, as much more uh, uh, programs of loftier ambition in that they're trying to be sort of lyrical and educational and philosophical um yeah except the reign of terror which is is reign of terror is perhaps a bit more like this because that's you know that that has a lot going on that's uh that, that, that and that also has humor in it uh whereas and this this has this has quite ripe characters and 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 there's obviously elements of um comic showcasery uh thrown in for patrick troughton uh who is still settling into his role as the doctor but of course it's the last historical until oh he's is, is he being his is he being the german doctor dr von Vare, which of course means doctor who and he calls himself Dr. W in The Underwater Menace. So as well as there being very much a I would like a hat like that thing going on uh, in the early Trout era, there's also the he's called Doctor Who thing going on, uh, which, of course, uh, I, I, I love seeing people on Twitter telling people off for calling him Doctor Who and very sincerely going, I think you'll find he's not called Doctor Who. And then people equally winding up by people going, well, he's called Doctor Who on the credits, so he must be called Doctor Who. I don't think he's called Doctor Who. I still think the character should be called Doctor Who on the credits because and those two things are entirely contrary. And I can live with that. I can live with the contradiction because I like one thing and I logically think the other. Uh, and I don't care that they perhaps cannot coexist because they do. Uh, is it, what is it? Cognitive dissonance. <laughs> Uh, but I think Doctor Who would be a silly name, and if the Doctor was called Doctor Who, uh, that that ludicrous um, fictional nomenclature would undermine the otherwise serious and wholly believable nature of the program. Um, I'm I'm liking that. It's going to be so difficult for me to choose favourite things in in this though because I. As I say, it's it's all right. I love it. Gloomy lighting in this uh, this shot in the cave. But of course, you can, as we as we've known, when 
episodes have turned up, like episode two of The Underwater Menace. There's so much you can't even anticipate is in there, particularly with Patrick Troughton's performance, that brilliant though these reconstructions are, and uh, I, I, I salute the doubty fans uh, who, who've put these things together uh, at great uh, with great skill and at, you know great cost of great personal time I remember when the telesnaps came back I uh, you know and, and the, there were bits of Bob's clips I remember saying oh I'm sure people could put them together and you know and, and all the fans going no nah, ridiculous idea but of course of course people have they've married them and and the, and they and they now make it onto the official DVD releases um, Charles Norton did say in an interview that he he thought we couldn't we could we could never animate the Highlanders because of all the tartan. But I've heard other people who work on the the Blu-ray and DVD range say that's absolute that's rubbish and it'd be perfectly easy to. So I don't know if that's a bit of Charles just getting it into his head that we can't do tartan. Uh, certainly, I know that they found Troughton's check trousers not not good to do. Um, and yet, I, when I interviewed a couple of the guys who did the faceless ones and said, oh, and of course, the tartan of Jamie's kilt is difficult. Nah, why don't you just do this and you just do that? So I, it was one of those ones where as an interviewer, you go, oh, I'm on safe ground with this bit. And, it, and actually, the basic premise of your question is immediately thrown out of the window by them. Um, so, yeah, Hannah Gordon, Hannah Gordon, so, uh, um as well as being uh, uh, the woman who killed off uh, Victor Meldrew, which I hope isn't her epitaph because it was she was in one episode of a TV program. Um, she also presented Watercolor Challenge on Channel Four in the afternoons, which was always seemed to be on when I was a student. Um, but um, was she in Telford's Change, a thing with Peter Barkworth as a bank manager? Um, she did sitcoms. She did all sorts, Hannah Gordon. Uh, and uh, actually used to live on the same road as the lady who says Amazonia, Wendy Danvers, who says, what doctor? Doctor who? Uh, at, at the end of The Curse of Peladon. Uh, she used to, she lived to live in the same road as her. That's a fact. <laughs> uh, and Polly, oh, is this is this going to be the cliffhanger? I know Polly falls down. Yeah, she yeah she falls down a. Oh, that's. Yeah, there we go. She's fallen down, and that's the end of episode one. Uh, yeah. So yeah, Alexander is is top because he gets because uh, it's uh, the Doctor, and then in order of appearance. So I talked all the way through that as I am supposed to do, but it meant that. Uh, Excuse me. This is first thing in the morning for me. I couldn't sleep, so I thought, well, I've been putting this one off, to be honest, because it's a struggle to know what to say about a story you don't know very much about that you're not going to see much of. Oh, goodness. What did I like about that? Very difficult, this task as i said as i've been putting this one off um it's loomed like a like a series of black a black and white stills just mocking me so you have to go and i and part i wanted i was going to cheat and go well i'll watch it 
would be more helpful for you lot if I if I watched it first and then rewatched it. But I'm not sure that's in the spirit of this. But whenever I do things like this, I say I'm not sure that's in the spirit. It largely means to make it easier for myself is not within the spirit of this. Why is the spirit of things I do to make it harder? When I was doing Who's Round, I went, well, I shouldn't interview the people I know and have encountered before. I should try it through the DVD range. I should try and get the person that wasn't on the DVD range uh, because that's more in the spirit of this. So I seem to always conjure spirits that make my life more difficult. Talk about self-fulfilling prophecy. Anyway, I I I really like the the sort of grimness that it seemed to be that you know they're all dirty and that and that and besieged in the cottage and on the run. I like what seemed to me, although I've always thought of this as quite a colourful story because of there's you know there's Perkins and and Finch these these sort of quite funny characters um, and 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 Tratton, you know in 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 full comic flow. Uh, I, I thought the grim backdrop stuff works if it if it has a suitably grim backdrop, which I'd kind of not remembered quite so well. So I I, I think that the sort of post battle, um, you, you know, fear and danger and sense of danger in that uh, dilapidated sort of cottage. Um, so yes, the 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 grimness, the grimness, the that that that. That post-battle atmosphere, I thought, was a very solid, uh, dramatic backdrop from which to tell the rest of the story. All that darkness and nighttime and all of that. Yeah, uh, he won't have chosen that. It's quite a nebulous thing to have chosen. So, the things that I've chosen, which I, I love the best about this story. Episode one, the Doctor pretending to be Dr. Von Wehr, the German doctor, uh, and of course telling everyone that that is his name, Dr. Von Wehr, that is what I said. Proof positive, if, if you ever needed it, that the doctor is actually called Doctor Who. Just look at the end credits and you'll know. You, we, we know that that's the case. Uh, oh, so I did, uh, funny enough, it's one of the few direct things in the episode I did actually talk about. Uh, so Peter and I are Venn diagram intersected, but without me choosing the thing. Um, but controversial Peter Ware, editor of Doctor Who, deputy editor of Doctor Who magazine. You heard it there. Doctor Who is called Doctor Who. I call Doctor Who Doctor Who because I just like the way it sounds. And I, I would have been furious with myself 25 years ago, but I'm trying to take life less seriously um and and johnny morris who's a brilliant writer i think johnny calls doctor who doctor who as well i like calling the doctor doctor who um <laughs> and and, <laughs> uh, and uh and i i sort of i do quite enjoy the idea of, uh, of somebody very earnestly saying to me you do know he's not called Do you do know the character's not called doctor who don't you Oh, really? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, have fun with the thing you like. This is And, I, and this is coming from me, who uh, has often taken Doctor Who far too seriously, because it's a very important uh, and serious part of my life. Um, but uh, you can take something seriously whilst not going about taking, that, taking something seriously too, in too serious a manner. Is that, so? Is that contradictory? No, I think those two things can live together. I'm making a habit of this. Uh, so look, have a lovely 
uh, a lovely day uh, and um, come and join me for episode two of Doctor Who. Is that the programme or the person? Uh, and the Highlanders. Well, welcome back. Assuming I've done this correctly, you have just heard the voice of Peter Ware telling you we're watching the Highlanders. That's just so that you feel familiar enough with him that when he gives his reason for forcing me to watch four episodes of Doc 2 I barely know that don't actually exist, uh, you will feel comforted by and familiar with his presence so you don't uh, as I currently used to do, want to smash his face into a million bits. Uh, no, Peter is one of the nicest men imaginable, but he has chosen The Highlanders, uh, which I am now going to watch episode two of. Uh, you're welcome to join me or just listen to me and I will try and conjure the pictures as best I can, which is frankly all any of us can do at the moment uh, because of its current state or lack thereof. So, uh, if you are watching uh, one of the very clever recons of this that uh, that are t tottering about on the fringes of uh, 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 of the universe, uh, please press play in three, two, one. Okay. Uh, well, here we are. It's, uh, and obviously, I'm going to try and um, sort of describe what's going on as well. I think that can sometimes cover cover the silences because I feel less bad because this is a story is there a more unfamiliar story because of course when the when the history of Doctor was written and for a fan of my age it was in uh, the Radio Times 20th anniversary special and Doctor Who a celebration I think Ian Levine did a story by story breakdown in the Radio Times thing and J. Jeremy Bentham in Doctor Who a celebration um, and those I poured over time and time again and my I mean I can still I can still remember phrases from those um, reviews they weren't so much reviews as there was a bit of plot a paragraph of plot and a paragraph of history in in Doctor Who a celebration which uh, you know floated my boat particularly it was a it was a very clever balance it's a brilliant book uh, I credit it with uh, transforming me from a you know a kid who liked Doctor Who to a fan who knew it started the day after John F. Kennedy was assassinated and that he wasn't really called Doctor Who. He was never referred to as Doctor Who, except in episode two of The War Machines, where he was called Doctor Who, but the production team uh, admitted that was, was, you know, all of that sort of stuff was uh, that Roger Delgado's full name was Roger Mario Cesar de Castillo, Rodriguez did whatever it was, you know, it had all of that stuff. It was it was so good. Um, but those histories it's interesting because I was thinking just before I started what are the stories we sort of know the least I was thinking maybe the savages maybe this maybe even the smugglers um uh but the but the savages you know that's that's st uh, Peter Purvis's last story the Highlanders is Fraser Hines's first story and that history was sort of plotted in a way that you know you'd get to a story and it'd go Jamie joins the TARDIS in this story or Ben and Polly leave in this story or, you know, Joe Grant joins in this story. So the savages, it was enough to know about it was that it was Stephen's last story. The Highlanders, of course, I nearly said Natch then and I stopped myself and I'm very glad I did, uh, was Jamie's first story. And that was at that stage, that was sort of all anybody needed to know. And I didn't really know the story of this until the book came out. Um... And, you know, it was, yeah, it was Jamie's first story. And 
the last historical. Algernon Finch is is actually n- nastier than I'd remembered. He's he's horrible here, and I, I remember this because I remember um, the discontinuity guide uh, listing as a, a, a you know a mistake that uh, he he uh, he threatens them with what three hundred lashes, which would be pretty bad. Uh, and they say, and the, I remember laughing out loud as a student, one of my housemates asking me what I was laughing at because in in the discontinuity guide they say um you know in the novelization uh davis uh reduces this to a less terminal six which is <laughs> a nice turn of phrase uh, but it, i think that's part of the joke because he offers he, he threatens somebody 500 lashes a bit later but anyway i'd, I'd remembered being him a bit more of an upper class twit which he is but but he's actually he's actually pretty horrible um at this juncture whereas i remembered being rather fond of him so maybe he he undergoes a transmogrification as a result of um polly running the rings around him so i'd be interested to see that because at the moment he's not a likable fellow at all uh and is involved in some lovely exterior night filming which is always a favorite of mine because i just think it really helps with the the atmosphere and of course being an historical story uh, you know, which isn't relying on monsters and big spangly sets. It's going to rely very much on on atmosphere, and and the night filming will help with that. Um, uh, um, so yes, how how unknown is this? I mean, if if uh, here we have Polly and Kirsty have fallen into a pit, and now Algernon Finch has followed them in, and oh, we've got a a, a screen uh, subtitle there telling us we're in Inverness. They don't happen in Doctor Who very often. I know there's one in The Reign of Terror because it comes before the episode title when they're in Paris, I think. And it will, I always think, well, that's surely what the story's called then if that's the title that comes first. Um, so we're in Inverness. Uh, interesting that we get a, an on-screen title. I wouldn't have known that. Um, I, these sets look very good. Geoffrey Kirkland is the set designer. He was on my list because uh, he, he used to uh, live with... Uh, Ridley Scott, Malcolm Middleton and Daryl Blake, I think, or they were certainly all muckers. Daryl Blake, who directed The Stones of Blood, who started off as a designer. Ridley Scott, who was a designer at the BBC, nearly designed for the Doctor Who, the second Doctor Who story, The Daleks, uh, but never did design for Doctor Who. Uh, And Malcolm Middleton, who goes on to direct uh, The Abominable Snowmen. And Kirkland and Middleton, Malcolm Middleton has been an art director for for Jeff Kirkland on a lot of his movies because Jeffrey Kirkland has had a fantastic Hollywood career and lives in America. And thankfully, because of the Faceless Ones DVD, we were able to, to get a link and we've done an episode commentary on the Faceless Ones DVD with Jeffrey Kirkland. So it was my pleasure to have a chat with him, which was lovely because uh, he was definitely a scalp I would have liked to have claimed and uh, and, and did. Um, but, but And I think they're still friends with Ridley Scott. Um, but Jeffrey Kirkland, who designed this and the Faceless Ones only, uh, has had a terrific uh, international film career. Um, look him up on IMDb. He's done some some amazing movies. Uh, worked with Alan Parker a lot. Um, did he do... Am I going to commit and say he did uh, Bugsy Malone? Did Children of Men? All sorts. Um... The companions have a good time. I feel a bit sorry for Donald Bissett, who uh, who plays the Laird, who was uh, uh, a respected actor and I think a writer of children's storybooks and was still around and acting, as quite a lot of the cast of this were, 
when I was sort of noticing actors in things, Bissett turned up and Sidney Arnold, I think they both turned up in Poirot. Sidney Arnold, who plays Perkins, who will come to later. But Donald Bissett, I don't think, says for him, he spends most of time being a bit poorly. So I look forward to him getting a few lines. I love this this prison set, though, um, uh, with everybody underneath and the, and the sentries looking down. It's It seems to me, and of course we don't know, but from the pictures that we can see, the, the the grimness of the jail with a G. Um, I'm spelling it like that anyway. Um, oh, and a subtitle has just come along that also has. Um, Troughton's having an awful lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> it's interesting how he doesn't um, uh, dress up as much after this. They, they sort of, it looks like this is, and he impersonates the... Uh, the investigator, doesn't he? In, uh, uh, the examiner in Power of the Daleks. Uh, and he impersonates a D- Dr. Von Vare and a washerwoman and a redcoat in this. You go, oh, OK, this is a a hat-coveting uh, disguise man. Uh, oh, and he dresses up as a funny, some sort of, some sort of um, fortune teller vagabond in the, uh, in the market in Atlantis, doesn't he? But they, they, they gradually get rid of that. I wonder if because Trouton, I think, is a brilliant actor. I, th- I think he's he's faultless. He's always believable, but he's always sprinkles everything with a little bit of pixie dust and magic. Um, I, but but I wonder if people had a word and went, "Look, you're you're good enough. You don't need to overcompensate. You don't need to do too much." And I have to say, who I think uh, I love Ben and Polly, and I and I, and it saddens me because I I like Jamie a lot. Um, but the arrival of Jamie means that Ben and Polly really don't get much of a stab. They start so promisingly with the war machines. Um, and the smugglers, which again is one of those ones that thankfully nobody has picked yet. So so if any friends of mine are watching, waiting to choose a story from me, give me a break. I'm on, I'm, I will have watched 11 Trouton episodes and only one of them will have had moving pictures. So J. Jeremy Bentham, who, whose work I so admired, I, I reached out to. Uh, and he's, he's, he's nominated Marco Polo. Come on, guys. Give me a break. I thought everybody would be choosing, you know, the robots of death and the talents of Wen Chiang and the, the seeds of doom. And, and, <laughs> but... Uh, um. And when these um, when these telesnaps were in Doctor Who magazine, they didn't use them all. They only used some of them. I think latterly I learned that I think it's because Hugh David charged them per picture. I might have got that wrong. So they could they could only choose a few. And it was an I think it was in an historical summer special. That was the theme. Uh, I think they interviewed Julia Smith as well, who directed The Smugglers. That was the theme of the magazine. It was a brilliant edition. That sort of stuff. I lived in the countryside in the middle of nowhere. When that sort of when you came home from the shop with that i mean i read them over and over and over again um now here are our three fun villains i'll go i'll return to ben and polly remind me you can't you're not here um apologies if i start a thought and finish it i think it's important that i keep talking because i've listened back to a couple of these going around the park which makes me physically sick i I don't like listening to my own voice but i have to do a bit of quality control uh and uh the silence is are quite frustrating. It's all right for you watching. You you know, you get to see the old, uh, you know, yeah. No, there's at least there's a, there's a visual distraction. And I'm assuming if you've got the video on, you might be watching the episode too. 
in which case hello welcome to my house but if you're listening hello wherever you are welcome to your bus journey to work tom bowman as the sentry um went to the states in the end i think but again he's he's uh, long dead but it's, it's not a bad sentry part you wish he'd been given uh uh perhaps a name uh, that's what i'd have been angry if got me agent say can't we at least call him jim um but what i like here is actually he's doing the sort of coughing thing and give me a bit of money um Polly nicks Finch's money. I think Finch a bit later on doesn't he that uh, uh, he has to he has to say to the sergeant, "Look, I'll give you so, get me out of this pit, but I'll give you some money later." Everyone is a bit of a rogue. There is nobody in this who money cannot buy, and yet it's not po faced about it at all. Uh, you, you sort of enjoy the fact that everybody hangs around to get their tip uh, or to get a bit of cash, uh, and it's rather fruity, which I which I quite enjoy. Uh, it's a particular, it's a particular sort of genre of uh, uh, of characterization. Um, uh, but uh, the three villains here, who doc, the doctor has great fun with, because they're all they're all quite nicely and and, and largely drawn. David Garth, uh, who is uh, the Time Lord in Episode One of terror of the autons is the main villain and he's it's the main guest stars as billed in the radio times are david garth and hannah gordon rising star hannah gordon uh uh it's it's with trouton is a very versatile and good character actor yet his his German accent in this, and I know it's a comic one. And also, by the way, my pet hate is lazy critics who go, uh, "The accent wasn't very good." And quite often, uh, it's my it's it's one of my favourite things to do is go, "But you're picking on an actor who actually speaks in that accent, and you just don't know that because you're a lazy critic." Um, uh, uh, and that and that happens quite a lot. I say it's my favourite thing. I don't do anything about it. I haven't got time to have those conversations. But <laughs> um, but I. Troughton is going for a very comic German, and also he, he, he's occasionally not too far away from Salamander, who's supposed to be from from Mexico. Uh, so it reminds me of the the great John Gielgud anecdotes when he was doing something in a in a in a play, and uh, he was putting on this, and somebody went, "Oh, Sir John, that's a uh, you, you how you know how have you uh, studied to get uh, this particular accent? Is that uh, you know is that Bavarian or does it have influences of this or that or the other? And you know this great sort of obsequious sort of wow, you know how how did you and at the end? Yeah, Gilgur just goes, uh, it's just general stage foreign. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there were many, many years where you could do that, where just any old accent would do, do so long. Which is why in Marco Polo, I'm sure I will talk at great length about the Czechoslovakian Kublai Khan. Uh, <laughs> uh, Troughton has great fun here. Troughton, and I mean now the doctor. Um, uh, uh, sort of runs rings around these villains and it's very enjoyable um uh even you, you know that even though they're up to sort of quite serious stuff but but perkins is a comic stooge as evidenced by the fact he's played by sydney arnold who was a very short uh, comic actor um uh, as i say who was still doing stuff in in the 80s i think he was still I, he lived into the 90s, I think, and into his 90s and was, was still going. And I love this. <laughs> it's horrible. And I don't know how they did it because, it, I mean, you hear the bang, don't you, when he whacks his head on. 
<laughs> he thracks his head on the table. It's delightful because Troughton is such a brazen doctor. Uh, he he bluffs his way through, and I love that about the doctor. Is that you know he'll go into a situation uh, uh, with nothing but bravado and a quick wit, uh, and he will get through it. And sometimes because the, the villains are, are, are you know pliable halfwits, uh, and Perkins and Sidney Arnold are, are, are great examples of that. But the banging the head on the table, I mean, is delightful, and the, the, t- the telesnaps capture it beautifully. Um, but you hear his head bang, so I don't know. I don't know how they did that. But Sidney Arnold has one of my favourite lines in the film. He's in a great film called Top Secret, which is created by. Uh, 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 it's a sort of it's a war film done by the team behind, or some of the team behind the airplane movies. So it's got those a lot of those sort of you know obvious movie gags, those fourth wall breaking, and some very you know very. Uh, 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 I'm not going to say poor jokes because they're great jokes, but they're they're corny jokes uh, and they're beautiful. That sort of stuff really appeals. Uh, and, and Top Secret is an under-celebrated uh, cousin to Airplane, and it has uh, Hugh Fitzwilliam uh, 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 and pr- from from the King's Demons, and oh, who's also Professor Morehouse in uh, Mummy on the Orange Express, Christopher Villiers. Uh, he's in it. Uh, there's a few Doctor Who people in it. Uh, actually, Richard Mays from Fury from the Deep. Um, it's got, it's got, it's because it, it was filmed. Uh, well, if it wasn't filmed here, it was filmed with uh, certainly with English actors. Um, and and one of the jokes is the French Resistance, who are made up of people called things like déjà vu. Have we not met before, Monsieur? They hide out at the potato farm, uh, and uh, at one point, I th- is it they, they knock on the door, uh, and uh, the. the 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 farmer who is Sidney Arnold opens the door or opens a hatch in the door and they go is this the potato farm and he says yes I am Mr Potato <laughs> which tickles me <laughs> I like I, I like the engagement here between uh, Algernon uh, who is in the pit uh, and his sergeant who's good. It's a, who's a very Peter Welch doing a very sergeant voice, you know, doing that. Uh, it's a, we know exactly who that character is. It's a, a, a stalwart of this sort of genre. But uh, go, yes, yeah, so I'll let you up. But, uh, and he's sort of, he's being insolent. He's being insubordinate, but in a polite way, which means that Algernon can't do anything about it. And, and so he sort of royally takes the mickey out of his superior. And it, and it makes for a nice interchange. Uh, and, and, it, and it helps to set up Algernon as this guy who's because of his misfortune um you know finds himself uh, uh, easily manipulated um which is a nice little sort of it's a nice little subplot the finch subplot um uh and his yes yeah, so his uh, bob is it barbara bruce she's called as the M- molly molly the uh, the the kitchen i'll use the parlance of the time the kitchen wench you wouldn't say that now oh, i love the picture of Troughton sticking his head through the curtains he has such a glorious face and he's clearly i mean we can't see it but he's clearly having an absolute whale of a time uh and he's you know and he's a he's a bit of a thief <laughs> You know, he's a, he's he's a, yeah he's a, he's he's as roguish as everybody else. Actually, this is a story for this doctor because uh, he you know he is uh, 
he manipulates people and he's he's cheeky and look he looks absolutely fantastic in the uh, in the washerwoman gear um and i don't think there's enough i don't think we get enough patrick Troughton in drag um john we get john pertwee in the green death don't we <laughs> now sh shall we talk about captain trask who is the pirate captain except as part of the plot it is revealed he was originally the first mate of Willie Mackay, who I think we meet next episode. Uh, and Willie Mackay sort of like this, this traitor, he was my first mate and now he's this evil, you know, he's, he's, he took over my ship and, you know, held me prisoner. But Captain Trask talks like a pirate. So, and, and it's, this is a thing, do we get this anymore where... I mean, he, he talks like Robert Newton, uh, who's the famous Long John Silver uh, on film, which Patrick Troughton was in, actually. Um, but it's, it's interesting how, how some performance could, performances could be so indelible that, that Robert Newton is Long John Silver and uh, uh, Laurence Olivier as Richard III. You know, John Ringham in the Aztecs as, as Tlatoxel. Uh, certainly... Uh, you know certainly tips and tips a wink channels a, a bit of the Olivier's I think Tatoxel though is a really good performance and I I totally believe him but that malevolence the hum hunchbacked um, uh, 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 sort of slightly snapped uh, lizard-like uh, sort of gait and voice is 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 very much of the Olivier Richard III uh, in fact, people, you know, sort of say now that's a bit Richard the Third, but what they mean is Olivier as Richard the Third, and and Captain Trask is very much Robert Newton as Long John Silver, played by Dallas Cavell, who has already had a bit of fun in Doctor Who because he's the roadworks overseer in the Reign of Terror, who the Doctor hits over the head with a spade in a great moment of um, a, a comic serious assault. Uh, <laughs> Um, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of um, more water and boats. They, I mean, I know they did a lot of this on on film, but there's a lot of uh, actual practical water, and these sets are great. I mean, again, from what one can discern from the pictures, but I'm I'm being transported perhaps m more than I thought I would have been, which I think opens the story out a little bit, which means that. This sort of fun little romp may have felt a little bit more sort of exciting um, because because it's not perhaps as, as cosy as and as confined. You know, we've all seen Doctor Who stories told on, you know, two or three sets that 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 and that can be very claustrophobic. But this seems a, this seems a little bit more epic in, in that sense with the amount of the amount of time we, we spend in in boats and things. Um and so so that's that's a bit of a pleasant surprise to me um but yeah dallas cavell had been the roadworks overseer he'd also been in the daleks master plan as one of the prisoners uh, on the planet desperous bores he's called um uh, which <laughs> it's hopefully it's his name but also hopefully not a description of what i'm what i do to you in these uh uh seeing another boat that looks great 
um, and lots of fog. There's lots of fog. I mean, you can see that from the still pictures. Uh, looks marvellous. Belay there, you swabs. I mean, one cannot blame uh, Dallas Cavell for the ripeness of his performance because it's there in the script. Uh, he's a bit more... Um, I would say he's a bit less colourful. Um, almost slightly wooden in, in The Ambassadors of Death as Sir James Quinlan. Uh, and then he's he's got a bit to do in episode one of Castrovalva. So Dallas Cavell is a great uh, regular player in Doctor Who. And I remember when he died, um, Doctor Who magazine said before he died, uh, Dallas, real name, uh, N.D. Lefebvre. He was, he was called Norman Dallas Cavell, actually. I don't know where they got the Lefebvre from. Perhaps that's a family name. Uh, completed a, a Beyond the TARDIS interview, which will appear in a future issue of Doctor Who magazine. And it never did. Hello, Doctor Who magazine. In fact, hang on, this has been set to me by the assistant editor of Doctor Who magazine. I'll watch The Highlanders if you run that ancient, unprinted interview with Dallas Cavell. He was in five Doctor Who stories. Um, and I would love to hear him talk about his performance as Captain Trask, uh, amongst many other things. So, look, that was the end of episode two. Um, two is the second natural number, the first even number, the smallest time in the only even time. Th thank you, Alexa. I didn't ask for her opinion. Leave me alone. Um, I, I think this is all part Thanks of... For letting me know. So I can learn from my mistakes. I, did you hear me say anything bad to her? I didn't. I, I think this is just part of her plan. Anyway, uh, we're all getting ready for that day when the machine stops. Um, now, listen. Uh, oh, I've got to choose my favourite thing. For, oh, well, it's going to be the scene where uh, the Doctor smacks Perkins' head on the table. Because I think that's very funny. Uh, two lovely actors doing lovely, silly things. Um, and yeah, there is a sense of fun uh, amongst the grimness, and I love I love the grimness of what looks like the production design and the, and the, the production. So to have it have colourful characters in it, including the Doctor himself, uh, makes this perhaps you know Doctor Who's version of a, a sort of boys over an adventure, which gives it that sort of colourful character twist, which means it's not just like yet another production of Moonfleet or, or or whatever, you know, those those sorts of things that were a staple of uh, of, 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 of TV drama. You know, it, it adds the Doctor Who sprinkle to it. What has Peter on a beautiful sunny day? Uh, his very her suit as well. What has he chosen as his favourite thing of episode two of The Highlanders? Episode two? Well, the thing I love about episode two is Dr. Von Vare doing some doctoring. Uh, that is Dr. Von Vare taking, first of all, Solicitor Grey, the, the wicked Solicitor Grey, grabbing him, stuffing a handkerchief in his mouth, shoving him in the closet, and then dishing out some rather naughty treatment to Perkins, Solicitor Grey's solicitor as well, by bashing his head against the table and convincing him he's got headaches. It's a brilliant scene, uh, and Patrick Troughton is He's just having the time of his life. In fact, the Doctor's having the time of his life. The Doctor, he, he just loves, loves being in the Highlands of Scotland, even during such a dark, dark time. And he's just running rings around everyone, particularly in this episode, Solicitor Grey and Perkins. So that's my choice for episode two, the Doctor bashing up Perkins and shoving Solicitor Grey in the cupboard. Well, I think we're of a in accord, so... 
it's it's one all as we approach as as we hit the halfway mark of the Highlanders. I'm always secretly delighted. I'm not secretly. I'm telling you, it's no secret at all. I'm always delighted when uh, I concur with my guest because over the course of 25 minutes, the chances are pretty slim. Uh, so good. So uh, it's it's one all. Uh, uh, and we'll uh, we'll see what happens on uh, uh, on the on the Annabelle, is it, on Captain Trask's ship, as we go uh, into episode three next time. But um, thank you very much for listening, ye scurvy dogs, and I'll see you next time on Happy Times and Places. Ah, <laughs> why can't? Why can't we give performances like that anymore? I don't think the world would be any worse a place if we... (laughs) Well, welcome back. Let's go up to the Highlands uh, and see what is what uh, and who is going to get a watery grave. Uh, I'm presuming you've just heard from... Peter Ware, assistant editor of Doctor Who magazine, and one of the cheeriest souls on the planet who clearly has a slightly sadistic streak uh, because of the challenge he has put before me. Um, But let us, without further ado, he says, looking for the remote control, this is going to be a fairly regular pastime of mine isn't it i can tell looking for the remote control with which to start the here it is because fans of remote control gate will be aware um that for episode one of this i couldn't find it i was i used a phone instead that was a real palaver i actually found this remote uh, where I'd searched for it previously and it wasn't which is in the folds of this sofa and I was looking for something else anyway I have it now so press play for episode three if that's what you're doing in three two one it's the Highlanders episode three um I, I mean I think the, the answer there is stop looking for the Highlanders uh, you doughty episode hunters start looking for I know R3 or uh, uh, episodes of Out of the Unknown uh, and you'll find the Highlanders uh, because you've been looking everywhere and it'll be where you've already looked. Um, probably in a cupboard in BBC Enterprises. Probably in Pamela Nash's handbag. Um, so listen, uh, it's episode three of the Highlanders. Uh, interesting, I, th- I thought I'd, I'd, I'd have a little bit of a, a look around because I was trying to work out exactly uh, how this production worked partially because i've i've asked uh, people on my patreon page to send in questions or observations or their favorite things and nathan moore um asked if it would always been the plan that jamie would uh stay or if the story that they refilmed the ending to keep jamie on board was true which sounds like a bit of sort of wishful thinking doesn't it, it sounds like a a a, a tale um, and that maybe there'd been some, you know, that hadn't been the original plan, and then they did it. But no, that on the 14th of, I think it was November, um, they filmed the TARDIS leaving, and Jamie stayed behind. And exactly a week later, they refilmed the scene on the hillside. They were still doing filming for the Highlanders, uh, but that was specially convened an extra filming day. 
uh, to film Jamie joining. Uh, Fraser Hines had worked on Smuggler's Bay, Moonfleet, with Patrick Troughton. Um, so they knew each other. Um, and Fraser Hines had done a lot of work as a child actor. Um, and, and where we are with this is that filming was done before the studio session for episode six of Power of the Daleks. So, so as they were filming the end of Power of the Daleks, Jamie was part of the TARDIS crew because they'd do, been, been doing the filming for this during the production of Power as they then do some of the filming for uh, The Underwater Menace during the studio recordings for, for this. So by the time that this is happening, Fraser Hines is on board because the filming has been done beforehand. So by the time we're in the studio here, uh, uh, yeah, Hines is, Hines is a regular, you know, he's, he's uh, although he doesn't get, you know, billing or anything like that, but uh, uh, he's, he's part of the team. He's going to be part of the team. Um, this is Andrew Downey, who was another actor. The cast of this prospered. Another actor who was still working, um, uh, right up, he died in about 2009, I think, and was still on an agent's books, was still, he did a voiceover work. He wasn't supposed, so he had a decent, you know, he had a decent and sustained career uh, playing Willie Mackay. Um, the part was originally, I think, supposed to be played by Russell Hunter, Lonely and Callan, Commander Yovanov in The Robots of Death, who then got a job, I think, covering Duncan McRae on his stage production, who had fallen ill or something. So Russell Hunter dropped out, apparently, and Andrew Downey stepped in. But that's OK because Russell Hunter did Doctor Who later on, so it meant we got two good actors in Doctor Who as opposed to one good actor twice. Uh, uh, and, yeah, as I say, Downey matured into a, you know, a very reliable, uh, you know, Scottish uh, character actor, regular face in productions that needed a bit of authentic Scots character and grit. Um, I meant to say, and I got I tailed off a bit last week, for which apologies... Um, oh yeah, the the, the new track and title sequence is in the can now. By the way, that was done last week, so um, it's interesting that they they hang around for a couple more stories before they uh, they've they've because uh, it's filmed. It hasn't been put together. Um, uh, but how great Ben and Polly are in this. I, I mentioned that Jamie coming on board, which is a wonderful thing for the history of Doctor Who, because we love Jamie and we love Fraser Hines. Um, ben and Polly are, are great. I love Ben and Polly, and and they only really get uh, a chance to shine, you know, for a for a few short months. Then Jamie comes in, and they 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 do get a little bit sidelined. But Polly, and and I didn't talk about it much in episode two when she, uh, you know, she cajoles Kirsty rather uh, uh, bullishly. Uh, and it's isn't it funny that Polly, how often is sort of, you know, in documentaries and things, they go, oh, let's show how. The, the 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 female companion screamed and made the coffee and of course Polly does do both of those things and yet when she's with a woman from the past somehow she's allowed to be sort of all modern and go-getting because it, it shows how how useless women were in the olden days although Kirsty is is that thanks I think to Hannah Gordon who has a great strength of character and voice and is a very good actress and a, a stunning stunning woman visually and vocally um but 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 you know Kirsty is sort of bossed about a bit by polly and that's us going well look 
look how emancipated women are in these days and how capable our women are, albeit ones that we make screen and, and, and make the coffee when things are set in the future. <laughs> it's all about how relative everything is. Um, whereas, of course, Kirsty for her time is pretty uh, 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 get up and go. It's, it's, yeah, it's all how it's framed, I guess. Um, but it's 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 fun how they that they've that in this situation they've decided, you know, to give Polly a superiority in terms of her confidence, whereas actually somebody from nineteen sixties England would probably be absolutely terrified of this bloodthirsty and cruel period, just in the same way that you know some of our wisest and most bullish voices. Um, I'm looking at you, social media. Are, are people who uh, wouldn't cope with uh, some of the periods in the past that uh, the older people they mock and chastise uh, had to face uh, on a daily basis? So uh, it's funny how we think of us. Yeah, we think of ourselves as more sophisticated and capable. Were we to be because of what we because we know so much. And yet, actually, you abandon us in the past. We only know so much because other people have taught it us. Yes, we have electricity and they didn't. But would you be able to make electricity if you were suddenly uh, stuck in this awful time period? No, you wouldn't be able to do half the things that we take for granted and we can do thanks to the, the, the invention of other people now. Uh, and you wouldn't be able to do any of the things that they can do then. So we're actually the worst. Modern people are the worst because... Most things have been done for us or discovered by somebody else. Uh, and we've lost the knack of doing things that everybody used to be able to do. We'd be terrible. <laughs> I mean, can you sew? Uh, can you, I mean, people can't even bake anymore. My mum can bake. It's a lost art. Uh, I, bet, I bet Molly the kitchen wench could bake. Um, anyway, uh, but everyone's, everyone's terribly dishonest. And there's a lot of manipulation. And I do like... I do like the way these two women run rings around. Algernon Finch, who I've not mentioned, Michael Elwin, another actor uh, who has had a fabulous career, still going strong. He is the partner of Alison Steadman, another fine uh, actor. But um, Elwin has done uh, so much. He was, uh, he was he was in one of the more modern TV iterations of Robin Hood. Um, uh, I mean, he was a thing called No Bananas. Oh, Steadman was in that. I wonder if they met on that. Um, done loads of stage work. He was in the audience with Helen Mirren uh, on stage at the National Theatre, which was on very, very recently. And in fact, I wrote to him when he was in, in that. It was when I was starting my Who's Round podcast. And he wrote a very nice letter just because he was one of the first people, one of the first guest stars to sort of do interviews so i think there's a doctor bulletin where he gives an interview and he remembers it very well and he remembers all the actors and and i think he'd got a few photos that he donated uh uh and so um he he, he gave sort of interviews early on and i th he's he's interviewed on the the recreation on the on the the uh, uh reconstruction uh of uh, that i'm watching now um so he's very much given his time to Doc Two, and I was badly timed because uh, I think he, he wrote and said, "Look, I, th I think I've said that all that I have to say." But he still took the time to write, and he still signed a couple of things for me, uh, and I'm very, very grateful to him. Uh, and yeah, I think he's been given more than enough of his time. And I'm sure if it turned up and there was an official BBC uh, release, he would—I uh, I bet he would uh, jump at it. But. Uh, Sometimes, uh, sometimes people have gone before you when you, you're researching things and, and after people. I, I bear no, so long as he's, he's, 
he's on record that's all that matters uh, to me but what a terrific career he's had uh, he was Anthony Eden in the audience with the Korean, Korean and it's a very very good performance um, uh, so you know a, 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 a jolly good actor uh, there who's who's had a career all of this time so that they were pretty the, the cast of the Highlanders were, were pretty blessed uh, a pretty uh, a, a prolific bunch um, uh, I, I'm still yes that's that's the point I wanted to make uh, last week about Captain Trask, who, as Willie Mackay has told us, was his first mate. But presumably when he was his first mate, he still talked like long and dressed like Long John Silver. So it's sort of like, you know, Sailor Jim. Yes, sir. Sailor John. Yes, sir. Uh, first mate Trask. Arr, what be ye you want, <laughs> me hearty? What? What? Uh, why are you talking like you're not a pirate, are you? No, I be your first mate. Right? You are. Is it international talk like a pirate day, which is a thing? And you know, I think the human race should be saved from extinction just for that fact. Um, but but he he clearly must have acted. He can't have started speaking like a pirate once he became a usurper. Um, Unless that's just something that happens when you become a pirate, you suddenly sound like a drunk member of the cast of the Archers. Ah, I be bad. I be a bit bad. Um, so I would suggest Willie Mackay, in his recruitment policy, didn't do you know uh, interview technique one hundred and one, which is if you say, "Will you be loyal to me aboard my ship?" and they go, "Ah, I think run a mile." <laughs> but it's a story that needs its colour, um, but it is very silly. <laughs> but it is a ripe, it is a ripe sort of show, and I think that that saves it from being dry. And and I mean, I I I, I totally get that 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 the historicals aren't everybody's cup of tea, and I think probably some people enjoy this a lot more than they enjoy the sort of historical that's more my cup of tea. Um, but I, I still... And I sometimes question myself and go, well done, Ben. Ben is very good. Ben gets a lot to do in this as well. And, of course, he's a sailor, so he's in his element. Um, but I, I do have to question myself sometimes and go, do I only like the historicals? Do, because I like to think of myself as somebody who likes the historicals. But the idea of watching a full historical, is, is that really something that appeals to me more than watching you know some proper hard sci-fi with monsters would the younger me if i'd been if i'd been born you know in time to watch doctor in the 60s would i have really preferred the the massacre which i love to the ark would i would i i i don't know that i would so i don't know if my enjoyment of the of the historicals is me slightly playing to myself the idea that I like to think of myself as the sort of person that likes the things that it's harder to like because obviously it's easier to like a bit of sci-fi in Doctor Who because that's what we see Doctor Who as than the historicals that were you know were phased out from here until you know brief uh, sojourn in the 1920s with the uh, Black Orchid in the Davison era but you know this is the last of the you know what had been a fairly regular occurrence in Doctor Who of the pure historical story, uh, and you know I know some people for whom they're completely not what Doctor Who does, 
Um, but I think they're often the, the smarter and more intelligent scripts. Um, whereas, as I say, this and The Smugglers, I think, are a bit more of the daring do and a, a, a bit more disposable, perhaps. But this is this is fun. Uh, and, and I certainly would love to see it. You know, there's no missing episode uh, to whose existence I am indifferent, partially because we know that Patrick Troughton would bring so much to... Just when the Underwater Menace episode 2 came back, there were so many great moments that you couldn't have anticipated were there that are only there because of Patrick Troughton's great inventive busyness and his, uh, uh, you know, his desire to... To, to, to keep things slightly left field and slightly unpredictable um, and he's having a whale of a time here in the dress with uh, Perkins and I think there's a bit in episode 2 isn't there where, where he has a little bit of a face off and Trask with Trask who just goes something who just goes and then leaves and I, and I, and I think there's, there's obviously something that's gone on there um, uh, but we don't quite know what it is 10 minutes yeah he's a he's a great type you can you can imagine him doing a lot of sort of dickens old uh, old sydney Ar Ar arnold you know playing playing any any number of sort of obsequious or portly uh uh dickens type of characters um so yes it looks it it certainly looks a a, a slightly bigger production than I'd thought and it uh, and, 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 and Troughton's carrying it the two the, 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 the two current regulars um, Polly and Polly and uh, Ben both getting a very decent slice of the action um, but I think it was the right decision to phase out the historicals and I've spoken to I've spoken to fans older than me who, who, you know, who were around at the time. And even Jeremy Bentham, who's chosen Marco Polo, says that, you know, that's actually more for how he's reappraised it since than the fact that it was his favourite story of the time. And we, I think we lord Marco Polo now as a, as a great lost classic and it's got all those beautiful pictures. But if you were a, 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 a young kid in 1964 who just watched Seven Weeks of Adventures with you know malevolent uh, space alien robot things and then a couple of weeks later it's it's a it's a journey it's a journey uh, across the gobi desert um with lots of uh, earnest but very well done science lessons um watch kieran hodgson by the way on twitter he 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 did a brilliant spoof of the crown but he has been he's been he's been doing doctor who very affectionately uh, where he's been playing all of the characters on his twitter uh, and his Marco Polo is gorgeous. Um, but, you know, I think Innes, Innes Lloyd has come in, hasn't he? And uh, got rid of... Got, well, I mean, my God. He he had an axe and he was going to wield it, didn't he? I mean, he, he, he got rid of... Uh, got rid of Dodo and Stephen almost immediately. Farnell <laughs> gets booted out. Uh, uh, and, in fact, so the historicals outlive... Uh, outlive those three who were <laughs> um, uh, and I do oh, Trout and Stovepipe Hat as well which uh, we don't have you know we don't have much in action and I, I, I think is rather a glorious thing 
but again it's you know somebody clearly had clearly had a little bit of a word um in terms of performance and costume and there's the there's the famous story isn't it of that they took his trousers in by by a centimeter or an inch every week um uh, because they were so baggy i don't know how apocryphal that that one is but it's certainly a sign that uh yeah they gave him a bit of head and then just went do you know what <laughs> which um but he's i mean he's so good without all of that and i think he's such an oddball without all of that and sometimes you don't need to to try so hard and perhaps because i've just you know speaking to his sons he was a very nervy performer uh uh, you know, a man who had two or two or three heart attacks at quite a young age as well. Uh, uh, who, 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 you know, you know, performed on nervous energy. You know, some actors are cool as a cucumber, um, and some are a, a, a ball of nerves. Comics too, um, and yet such a consummate, such a brilliant, such a deft and skilled actor. But perhaps part of that was a harnessing of his nervous energy. So you know, perhaps that nervousness meant that he went, well, I'll throw everything at it. Uh, and, and perhaps, you know, as he gained in confidence and realised that just doing, you know, this mercurial man-child uh, space pixie thing w- was enough and he didn't need the accoutrements. So maybe if Dallas Cavell had, had stayed on as a regular, he'd have toned down, toned down the R's <laughs> a little bit. I've got to remember, as I talk through this, uh, that I am also looking for... Uh, things to really enjoy in it I'm 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 loving from what I can glean the sort of the mist and the darkness um you, you don't know how much of that is obviously that it's still pictures and the, the the contrast may have been a lot flatter um I remember sometimes Doctor Who being quite surprising I remember you know imagining Tomb of the Cybermen as this sort of very dark shadowy tale and actually it's quite you know the lighting is 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 quite bright the contrast is quite flat whereas you know unearthly child the, the certainly the stuff you know the, the cavemen that's you know got real contrast with its sort of inky blacks and its shadows so you know seeing what stuff looked like we you know we with this we can only guess but it's this is an interesting plot wise that um polly's basically nicked algernon finch's money and that's all they really need to do to uh to to win this part of the story so they've all been off to gather weapons because polly and kirsty have come back with well i don't know a, a spatula and a fork handle uh and the doctor's come back with a wheelbarrow full of guns <laughs> which is a nice gag and he's still dressed as a woman um <laughs> um Oh, that's something I remember. Michael Elwin said, by the way, he uh, that he started seeing Hannah Gordon, uh, and they were they they were in, they were uh, they, they were a couple for a, a year or so after this. So um, file file that away in your office romances on the set of Doctor Who uh, list if you're keeping one. There are stranger lists that 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 people keep. Uh, she's a very beautiful woman, isn't she? Um, Uh, so so yes uh, and it's quite nice that the doctor's having this adventure whilst dressed as a woman with these two very capable uh, uh, female characters which bucks the trend a little bit Um, and actually Polly in this 
is is much more like the Annika Wills that uh, it's been my great privilege to encounter, who is very much uh, a, a, a person of get up and go and and running rings around people and uh, and and saying what's what uh, and uh, with a real sort of grasp for let's just do this. And I can imagine if if Annika Wills was thrown backwards into the time of Culloden, she would be pretty like. Uh, Polly is because she's uh, she's a very capable, uh, unfazed uh, person. Uh, uh, sh- uh, she's 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 good fun. She's good fun. And of course, of course, when when I was discovering Doctor, she vanished. Annika now lives in India. Was was about all that she got. She was a missing person. These were the days before you could just Google somebody, you know. And and it took. I think Stephen James Walker and David Howe and those guys deserve the credit for that. Uh, I could be wrong, but uh, I remember it was a really exciting thing when they found this regular from Doctor Who who'd been hitherto, you know, unknown and uninterviewed and sort of missing in action. And she returned to the Doctor Who fold and she was reunited with uh, Michael Craze, which was absolutely lovely because he died not not long after that. Um, uh, And she's now, you know, a stalwart of conventions and commentaries and all that sort of thing. And we're very fortunate to have her. So, um... Listen, uh, I have to press pause and I have to decide what it is I like about that. Well, I think... So I'm vacillating between the production design, part that, which is I know only based on photographs, but, but also with a little bit of, OK, I'm conferring on the fact that Geoffrey Kirkland is a hugely respected motion picture Hollywood designer um, but it looks good in the pictures um, I'm sort of enjoying Dallas Cavell but I think for the wrong reasons I think I think it would be a bit cheap to choose <laughs> Long John Silver which is essentially what he's doing I like the doctor dressed as a woman I like the gag with the wheelbarrow full of weapons um, I like the fact that everyone's a, you know everyone's manipulated by money and everyone's slightly dishonest that was more last episode though but i think i'm gonna go or should i use that as my i like the dinginess as well but but i think because uh, i do have to choose a bonus at the end which i've just listing back to a couple of the ones that i've done uh, did I do it with Battlefield and Rescue? Where I go, no, the other the person chooses the bonus. I don't, which I don't know why I thought that. That seems like a silly rule. So I do have to come up with one uh, one extra. Um, and, and what I think I'm about to choose, well, do I like the stuff? Do I like the filming? Do I like the walking the plank and the water? And maybe the thing I'm going to choose in my head here, I will choose as my bonus thing. Uh yeah, I like I like the amount of water. I like the fact that that opens it up a little bit. You think of the Highlanders, you think of sort of Culloden Fields or Frencham Ponds as it as it was, uh, and actually having all that stuff on the boat and having the plank uh, and having all of that water, um, it it opens it up a bit. It looks deathly cold, uh, and and it adds 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 some genuine peril amidst amidst the merriment. So yeah, the 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 plank and the water and 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 the sort of stuff on board ship, uh, I think uh, 
I think gives gives the the story an edge um, and it looks well realized too so I'm gonna choose that I'm I'm aware that's not the best thing but I've got to keep something in reserve because I've got to choose two things next week and this is not a story I know very well does it show I'm sorry what's Peter Ware chosen I'm gonna kick him in the balls when I see him I couldn't have chosen something I've seen a lot that smiling face episode three well episode three is the only episode of Doctor Who where the doctor spends the entire episode in drag he's dressed up as an old washerwoman but he's got a funny little voice uh, and, and, and again running rings around people loving it soliciting weapons from uh, naughty English soldiers sampling stuff in the kitchen uh, well it's the doctor in drag what can I say it's, it, it's, it's got to be my favorite moment from episode three well of all of episode three because he's in drag all the way through episode three uh, I should have chosen that I, I touched upon it it hadn't occurred to me because I was talking yeah because but I did say a couple of times didn't he? he's still dressed as a woman doctor who is in drag throughout the whole of episode three of the highlanders and that's the only time in the show's history ha <laughs> ha i think that is a glorious fact i i i will kick you i will i will i i, I won't kick you in the balls quite as often as i'd intended to uh peter um, i will pull a couple of my kicks for that fact uh to uh to, to, to be injected into this uh, podcast just at the end. I wish I'd chosen that. There are too many instances of this. I need to be more on the ball, not on Peter's, um, because that is a much better choice. Uh, I need to engage my brain whilst my mouth's going on, but it's tricky. Um, I love the fact that Doctor is in drag throughout episode three of The Highlanders. I wish I'd chosen that. I didn't. So it's 2-1 to Peter, but I've got a chance to claw it back by guessing both of his things next time uh, as uh, we go for episode four and let, hey look if I don't like the way that episode four ends I could always come back a week later and refilm it do you see what I did there I, I won't it's cheating but do you see what I did there well thank you to Peter Ware assistant editor of Doctor Who magazine which a title he has held for many, many years. Uh, and he's one of the most enthusiastic uh, and genuinely jolly people uh, you could ever meet. He used to be a dentist, you know. Uh, who has who decided, out of all the stories to choose, was The Highlanders, and we've got to episode four. Thank you for joining me on it so far. Let's see if we can... Uh, uh, fling our way out of the Highlanders uh, with a plom. Uh, I'm slightly concerned because I'm, you know, we've done three episodes of a story we can't see. I think I've told you every fact at my disposal. Um, so I'm slightly worried because I've also got to talk and uh, choose two things. In fact, I should have said all of this over the action because that would have bought me a couple of minutes. Strap yourselves in, guys. We're going to Scotland. Uh, so, three, two, one. Start the episode now. 
So, here we are. We're going... Well, yeah, a word about Hugh David, the director. He, uh... I, th I think I mentioned he was one of those people that, you know, he, he died, you know, he was interviewed and then he died not long after. You go, oh, well, he must have been old. And, and now I, I, you know, I know people of, of that age. He was still working on a director called Romy Allison, I think, took over. But I can't remember the name of the thing that he was working on now. And Romy Allison had been a, I remember had been assistant foreign and product assistant on the Leisure Hive. Um, uh, but yes, um, Hugh David has been very unlucky because none of his episodes of Doctor Who uh, exist. And Elwyn Jones, a Welshman, Hugh David, a Welshman, Elwyn Jones, doing the Scottish story. Um, Elwyn Jones, I, I've, th there, is, there, is, there is a picture of, there are pictures about, and he was a big cheese with Zed Cars and, and Softly Softly. Um, seems odd that he still gets a credit when, when he chose the setting and the period. And I don't think they'd wanted to do, I think Innes Lloyd was so again the historicals i don't think they'd wanted to do it but they'd sort of committed oh and that's the point hugh david was going to direct he was directing the second patrick troughton story which this is um but it, the scripts he got were for the underwater menace and he just went nope i am not doing that and so they swapped the order about so actually troughton's second story should have been uh, another sci-fi adventure with a mad scientist and his pet octopus but instead uh, uh, Hugh David uh, did this, uh, and it was it was brought slightly forward. So, um, so the, yeah, so it's slightly anomalous in in that sense as well. Um, uh, and Ben Ben's navy training navy thing comes into force here, where he gets to do a bit of swim. I like it when companions get to you, you know show their their special bits of uh, pluck. Although I'm sure my granddad used to tell stories of sailors. Who couldn't swim because it was better to just if you know terrible things happened just to drown i'm sure that's a thing he said which seemed <laughs> seemed awful to me and jamie can't swim in this can he another disguise from patrick troughton and i, I like the voice he puts on uh, here and uh, it's a great look the sort of wounded bewhiskered soldier uh he's got such a great face and, and ben looks so the telesnap of Michael Cray's covered in water. He looks absolutely freezing. Um, but again, a lot of these things have a sort of filmic look about them. But uh, uh, this, I think, the stuff with the water and the and the and the paddle boat are not film, which you'd sort of expect. And and I thought maybe some of the stuff in the sort of uh, the, the the jail that they're in in episode two and three would be sort of slightly filmic because of the nature of the sets but no um the the water is and the stuff outside is but uh, you know the water and the plank that boaty stuff is but the rest of it is studio so well done um Hugh David was very highly regarded as a director from the people that I have spoken to so I have high hopes this would look uh this would look like a good production um and he was married to Wendy Williams, who plays Vira in the Ark in Space. Uh, so uh, there's another fact to put in your pipe and smoke it. Um, and I think David Garth was... Oh, I, th I think David Garth's wife was friends with... with uh, David Garth. Was friends with Nicholas Courtney. Um... 
Was David Garth married to Geraldine Newman, who plays Hilda in Ever Decreasing Circles, or did I make that up? Who knows? Uh, if you're uh, if you're listening to the podcast version, the video version of this will have a clarification. Oh no, I've invented a thing recently called "I think you'll find" where I correct any mistakes I throw in. Uh, but I'm going to say maybe he was married to Geraldine Newman, who uh, was Hilda in Ever Decreasing Circles, which is again is a sort of reference to people of my age that is perfectly normal. But I know loads of Doc Two fans have come since, and when I go, "Oh, so and so was in so and so," and they go. And um, what's this so-and-so of which you speak? Um, uh, I remember Andrew Pixley telling me about... Um, um, he's talking to Emily Cook, who is a very knowledgeable uh, and smart person. Uh, and he was talking to her about Sapphire and Steel, and she was going, well, I've, you know, I don't know that. I've never seen her. But, of course, of course, it was probably on before she was born. So why would she know it? Just in the same way that um, there's loads of science fiction made since that I've, I've never seen. You only know what you know, don't you? Um... And I, I mean, my science fiction knowledge is is actually quite poor, if I'm honest. I've I've not seen a lot of Farscape, you know. Uh, uh, I've, I've, let's not go into the sci-fi I've seen or haven't seen in order to distract us from the fact that I don't know very much about the Highlanders. Uh, I, they've got a nice bond now, Kirsty and 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 Polly, and so. And of course, they're they're selling the Highlanders into slavery. That's the that's the sort of dastardly plan. Um, and I know that um, I had cause to ring Derek Martin, Charlie Slater, off of EastEnders uh, this week. And then I've and he's in this. He's one of the so he's in the Smugglers as one of the the sword fighters. But he's one of the sword fighters in this as well. Um, and what actually one of the guys in the hold. Um, is Gordon Craig, uh, who is the guy that doubles for William Hartnell in episode three of The Tenth Planet. So he's a sort of emergency doctor, uh, uh, who I presume is long dead, um, but, you know, uh, 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 an extra and a walk-on, but who uh, has had the honour, and not many people have, of playing Doctor Who. And he did it because, uh, cause, yeah, William Hartnell... Uh, uh, couldn't do episode three of the Tenth Planet relatively late in the day, but Gordon Craig is also the name of a great theatre practitioner, and it's it's not the same one. But uh, that means uh, uh, it's not very easy to find much out about uh, our Gordon Craig. He's got a great face, hasn't he, Solicitor Gray? And he's a good villain, uh, and he's actually keeping it pretty. Oh, there's Pat Gorman. Oh. How gorgeous, Pat Gorman! Ubiquitous extra. You can and in the in the recon I'm watching. He's he's wearing a woolly hat and he's uh, standing behind Patrick Troughton. Uh, Pat Gorman, there he is. Turns up in Doctor Who, I think between what Dalek Invasion of Earth and Attack of the Cybermen. Uh, I think in probably in more episodes than anybody else. He's in everything. You, I remember somebody had recommended the Sandbaggers. Uh, 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 on DVD and I got that so this is a brilliant series you'll love it well I did love it it's fantastic um, uh, and the first person you see is Pat Gorman in the street uh, <laughs> uh, what a legend and actually he uh, 
when I when I was getting divorced and I stayed with a friend who looked after me, uh, I discovered that Pat Gorman actually lived about three streets away. But I never had the pleasure. I did uh, I did write to him, uh, and he he sent back signed pictures. But he wasn't terribly interested in being interviewed. And I spoke to his daughter after he died, uh, and he was you know happy to sign things and stuff. But he didn't didn't particularly want to go back and I think was not necessarily comfortable with being interviewed. There is an interview with him on a thing called I Was a Doctor Who Monster that was a, a little documentary short put on before the planet of the Daleks repeats uh, celebrating 30 years of Doctor Who. And I tried to track down the rushes for that so that we get a bit more of Pat Gorman, but I tracked down the rushes of pretty much every other interview apart from the Pat Gorman one. It's probably out there somewhere. I would be surprised if it wasn't. Uh, but I didn't get hold of it in time to write my little... Well, I bitted a little bit for Doctor Who magazine and a, a bit for my blog. Uh, I'm loving the atmosphere of this. Um, I mean, we talk of the atmosphere of the 60s stuff, and as I say, sometimes something like Tomb comes back and it's... it's, it's the atmosphere is in the is in the performance, but it's not in the in the shadows. Um, whereas the, the smoke... And it's amazing how simple things like a lot of smoke... And some some shadowy lighting can be um, uh, yes I I the lead actually doesn't do all that much does he it's very much a sitting down part he must have been quite relieved when if it, you know if he'd if had a long week he's just oh well I, I just have to have a sort of lie down here um, <laughs> you you work with actors sometimes you go should I I think I should sit down at this point. Because <laughs> you know, it's going to be a long run of the play. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I really think my character would pro would probably find a chair almost immediately. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I did Time Lash for this recently, which I think will have come out before this. I'm mixing up the order so that historians in the future can piece together the production order. <laughs> uh, yeah. I know some people will have taken that seriously that I think will be historians in the future uh, looking at you caring about this. I'm fully aware that that is not a thing. Um, uh, but yes, uh, and, and Dick and Ashworth is says on uh, spends pretty much the second half of part two leaning on his elbow. <laughs> uh, yeah, we like to. He's yes. It, there's actually, I quite like the way that the we enjoy the three tiers of villainy, and I think they're 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 nicely balanced. So you've got very over the top pirate guy. You've got very sort of cold and cunning, and and uh, uh, you know very civilized. Although he's doing a deeply uncivilized thing. Uh, Solicitor Grey and then you know the rather obsequious uh, Perkins oh I'm doing my German accent again um, <laughs> um, I do love Patrick Troughton I hope you do too um, oh yes you're you're at my house aren't you you're at my welcome uh, it's coming up to Christmas here in Haydock Towers uh, and I have to admit I have been putting off doing the Highlanders. Peter, because he's a very fastidious and hardworking and nice chap, came in pretty early when I sent requests out and said I've chosen the Highlanders. And it loomed. Uh, 
So if 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 this is vaguely entertaining, stick with me, do please, because this is uh, this is this is what I was uh, uh, especially worried about. I'm just trying to think what what uh, how we discovered how we discovered things about it there are far more telesnaps as i say than that were printed in that doc 2 magazine but uh, 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 it's it's amazing how again isn't it beautiful that doc 2 came back sort of piece by piece so telesnaps had been seen uh, the power of the daleks telesnaps existed um and there are there are a few off-air pics of episode seven of the dalek master plan and then these came back uh and then I think it was when Marcus Hearn said, well, let's look at the BBC written archives uh, and came across, you know, a whole stash uh, of telesnaps. So, but it was rather glorious that actually, oh, and the, I think there'd been a few from the moon base as well. I think Michael Wolfe, the actor from the moon base had some. So, so bits had come in, which is almost, which is better. That's a much better way round than, uh, uh, you know, us, Marcus Hearn finding the written archives first and having that big stash, then us, then then it being, then some being found that were duplicates of ones that, that had already come. So uh, Doctor Who's history was sort of peeled away layer by layer. Now I'm suspecting uh, this fight will have been very very good, um, just because it's got it's got stunt guys doing it. Peter Diamond was a was a very very good fighter ranger. Um, he's on hand to. Uh, to supervise the fights and I think gets a credit as sailor in this as well um nice that Willie Mackay gets to to fight Trask um but uh, yeah a, a, a director as good as Hugh David although I don't know how much of this was done on film and of course a, a film fight and a studio fight are very different beasts but uh uh I'm prepared to give it the benefit of the doubt. There seems to be a lot of coverage. Um, but, I mean, we have no idea, do we? Um, and that's that sort of touches upon what I was talking about with the telesnaps and things. We, uh, you know, so much of this is left to our imagination. And that's a blessing in some ways because it's exciting. Uh, but it's, it's based on a tragedy, um, you know. It's it's you know, yeah, uh, you know, we, any any connection we do get, uh, or any on any scant little fragments that we we do enjoy, based on the fact that we only have scant little fragments because, uh, and it's interesting, isn't it, that um, oh, trust gets thrown overboard, um, that we d none of the fight sequence from this is featured in the Australian censor cuts. So that's interesting. And of course, this this reconstruction has, I think I may have just been a bit dim and a, and a, and a lot of the, the stills may have been from something else. The, 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 the genuine Doc 2 one, the telesnaps seem to be of a slightly different hue. So I may have just, uh, I may have just, given you a bum steer i may have given you a not very accurate uh, recreation of <laughs> which is under the circumstances only appropriate but even if only a, a, a few fragments of what i said 
uh, bore in any way uh, bore relation to the reality. That is apposite. Um, and because Jamie got to kill Trask, um, but he's he's not had a, he's not he's he's not had a wild amount to do in in the story. So it, I don't think it was always. obvious that he was going to join i like the fact that perkins comes good uh yeah the and and you know the the, the sort of dickensian clark uh who for all his humility sir has a little bit of a survival instinct but also i think because he's a because he's a nice character it's it's not all opportunism uh uh yeah it's it's partially as well because he, you know he's a victim of circumstance and he's trying to survive and um i think it's a nice moment of it because if solicitor gray is not going to die which is unusual for a doctor who villain you know trask is the one there to get um uh, you know the 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 the, the, the mortal uh, conclusion uh, whereas uh, Gray, unusually, yes, does not die, but he does get, he does get his comeuppance not just at the hands of the Doctor, but his servant, who he's sort of bullied around a bit, gets a the little man gets a nice victory, which I enjoy, and might well be uh, actually what I choose for my moment. Um, we're glad to have you with us too, Fraser Hines, who. Uh, on a four-week engagement, uh, as uh, anybody that's associated with Doctor will tell you, uh, uh, you will never leave. And uh, he certainly never has. And he's in every Trout and Story bar, the very first. Uh, which is a pretty hefty... Uh, a pre pretty hefty contribution to the show. Good for him. He's a bit of a Doctor Who legend. Uh, and I think his rapport with Patrick Troughton is one of the highlights of the era. Um, and he's... Oh, and Fraser, yes, of course, because uh, we're going to have a new character come in now. And 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 F Fraser always um, mentions uh, Guy Middleton, who was had been a sort of 30s and 40s matinee idol um, towards the end of his career and his life here. But yes, Colonel Atwood uh, is, is, is played by... Uh, uh, an actor of quite good of, of, of good stock and it's uh you know it's very much a cameo appearance um oh he's not actually here yet so i've i've just said everything about him before he's come on the scene and um oh is this the first we've seen of algernon in in this episode so actually the pirate story is the ship story is gone the slave story is gone uh and it's more just facilitating the egress of uh of the doctor and his chums um oh poor old algernon fish i am feeling a bit sorry for him now there is guy middleton uh, and he really is playing sort of upper class twit which is which is rather fun um but uh yeah fraser always goes oh god we got guy middleton it was uh you know that was amazing but yeah they get him for for one episode um but he doesn't get he doesn't get star billing or anything uh you know he's uh 
wanders in for a bit. I'd be interested to see. I haven't seen the paperwork for this. I'd be interested to see because of the way that the BBC pay people. Uh, if you've done a lot for the BBC, um, you know, even coming in for one episode, you might end up being being paid more than everybody else. And, and it's often very little to do with, you know, the billing or the size of the part as well. The paperwork I have seen, it's very interesting to see who uh, who gets paid what. And as I say, it's, off, it's it, it, the BBC system is you get paid a little bit more every time you perform for them. And, you know, your bar will be set by your agent at various points in, in the career. So uh, how much it goes up by, you know, will depend on status a little bit. But, uh, yeah, um, c- c- continued and frequent employment bumped your fee up quite a lot. And working on film bumped your fee up quite a lot. It's amazing how, you know, doing a couple of stints in the film sequences meant that you got paid a lot more than people that went to rehearsal and, and, and studio. And actually, uh, the the Finch stuff is nice. That as 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 uh, as as with Perkins, who's the sort of worm that turned Finch. Finch gets his moment. Finch starts off as a bit of an ass, then he becomes a sort of hapless. Uh, stooge uh, of 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 Polly's machinations uh, and you know her, her 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 game contribution and her um, and her quick wittedness, um, but actually he gets a chance to uh, to better himself uh, and and do the right thing uh, and and. Uh, so Gray actually gets a comeuppance twice. He's had a comeuppance at the hands of Perkins, and now he's got a comeuppance at the hands of uh, the, the the other, you know, slight, slightly hapless underdog sort of character. Oh, Peter Welch, by the way, as the sergeant, um, turns up again in the android invasion as Mr. Morgan in the pub. Uh, always nice to see actors crop up a couple of times in Doctor Who still waiting for that Dallas Cavell interview though <laughs> I think that's lovely and Polly kisses him and it's a funny thing about time travel though because as soon as, soon as, he's, soon as they go you know in, in Polly's time Algernon Finch has been dead for centuries and it's very funny how I often sometimes think that when we watch a war film you know and we go oh they've survived the film. The fact is, they could die the very next day. Well, it's 1917 the other day. You go, oh, they've survived. You go, yeah, but it's 1917. There's a whole year to go. <laughs> um, and uh, but but you know, yes, our our lives with the people in the stories. It's somehow satisfying to us that if they survive our time with them, that's okay. Because you know, when Jamie gets dropped off at the end of the war games, you know, the first thing that happens is a red coat tries to shoot him. And the doctor goes, Oh, look at Jamie, he's doing that. And you sort of go, Yeah, but now he is now massively imperiled and his chances of survival are <laughs> are very small indeed. Especially as all his mates <laughs> have gone away. Um so this is the remount. This is the night filming. So strictly speaking, because it was filmed twice, it's possible that uh, two versions of uh, this could exist somewhere. They won't, but uh, but t- two were filmed. Oh, but there's not even any... It's not that complicated a scene. There's not even any dialogue. Goodness me. 
Uh, in that film. Wow, so Jamie's coming on board is... is rather... is... what Jamie coming on board is... very little happens with that. I'm all, I almost want to rewind that and go, was I not paying attention? So I won't... I won't go t on about it too much, but it seemed like a very um, peripheral moment, really. It was just a sort of, we're all getting into the TARDIS and off we go. Not a sort of, come on, Jamie, we're the stuff of legend, which we do now. But no, anyway. Um, so Jamie is on board the TARDIS. Next week, Doctor Who and the Underwater Menace. Ha 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 ha. Oh, nobody's chosen that yet. Uh I will have a great time with the underwater menace for reasons I will explain when I do it, should I still be doing this um, uh, uh, and have not found anything better to do. I should have started this at the beginning of the plague. They found a vaccine now, so I, I mean, I may as well stop. I'm not going to. Um, so the, uh, the two things, so a thing about episode four and a thing as a bonus thing as a whole my thing about episode four is perkins clicking his fingers in the face of solicitor gray uh it's it's well maybe a him and algernon the fact that both of those characters get their moment where um they become because of their exposure to the tardis crew they do the right thing they they become better people um and they both have a moment a sort of punch the air moment uh, or the 60s equivalent of. And my thing about the whole story, I think, is the contributions of Ben and Polly. Because Ben got, gets to do his brave thing and gets thrown over the edge and he, you know, he escapes from the Nox. He's a, he's a sailor, so he's, you know, that, 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 I like all of that. And, he's, and he tears up the, he tears up the, uh, the contracts, doesn't he? Uh, 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 and, and very much steers the Highlanders around the doctor's madness because they don't quite know how to take him and ben's the sort of voice of reason ben catches on when they don't and polly whose stuff with uh kirsty and and with finch is brilliant and she's very game and she's very smart uh and it, you know it's her idea to do the orange selling thing uh and uh and, and has a really good contribution to the story that she doesn't get in some of the others it has to has to be said um so yeah the contributions of ben and polly i think are, are lovely in uh, in in that story what what does peter say but i am going to go back and and uh, and and watch that end to see jamie's joining of the show episode four well, the, the one thing obviously I haven't mentioned yet is Fraser Hines as Jamie. This was, of course, Fraser Hines' first appearance as Jamie in the story. Uh, and he doesn't get to do an awful lot in the first three episodes, but in episode four, Jamie comes into his own. He takes a lead role in the, the fight aboard the Annabelle, the, the slaver ship, uh, towards the end of the episode. And he takes on Captain Trask in a sword fight, eventually forcing Trask overboard uh, and into the Firth. So heroic Jamie then escorts the Doctor, Ben and Polly back to the TARDIS uh, and, and departs with them at the end of the story. And the rest, of course, is history. So that's my choice for episode four. Jamie coming into his own with a sword fight against Captain Trask. And finally, uh, my bonus thing that I love about the Highlanders, 
is the Doctor's love of hats. Now, um, this was something which was dropped fairly early on in the second Doctor's run. Uh, I, I think they, you know, they, they tried to pull him into trousers a bit and they calmed down his wig and, and they basically when Maurice Barry came along with the moon base he just cut a lot of Patrick Trowman's eccentricities away and we get the second Doctor which we know um, for the remainder of his tenure but in the Highlanders and like Power of the Daleks before it the Doctor has an inordinate love of hats he's got the, the little Highland cap which he finds in episode one uh, he's got his own hat of course the, the Paris bow uh, which many fans know as the stovepipe, but it's, it's a Paris bow, I believe. Um, he's got the, 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 the cap of the, uh, the, the, the kitchen maid, uh, which he pops on for most of episode three. Um, he's got a soldier's hat, which we see at the start of episode four, so an English red coat hat. Uh, and there's also a hat which unfortunately doesn't survive in any visual form, not in the telesnaps or any of the few stills which exist from the story, which is a sailor's hat, which I think Ben shows him uh, in episode three. So. That's my bonus thing, the Doctor's love of hats. Hope you enjoyed the story as much as I did, Toby. Oh, Peter, where? Well, I did now because I think that's my, one, a Paris bow. I've always called it the stovepipe hat. So uh, I would like a fact like that. Uh, I, I've learned something. I hope you have too. Um, I hadn't adumbrated the number of hats uh, that the Doctor encounters. And I'm a hat wearer myself. I... I'm indoors for this, but I, I'm generally, I mean, I don't leave the house without a hat and I have a variety of them. So uh, you'd have thought I would have been a bit more uh, uh, simpatico with the millinery. But um, uh, that's, those are, those are great choices. And funny, I touched on, I touched on Jamie, but actually went the other way and went with Ben and Polly. I think, and I think probably I took Fraser Hans for granted just because I know, you know, that he has much to come, whereas I, I slightly lament that, you know, this this spells the doom of Ben and Polly, really, and uh, and their their contributions are rather diluted, um, and uh, uh, and they're they're slowly and rather unceremoniously uh, edged out when Innes Lloyd goes, oh, I like uh, I like the uh, I like the relationship between uh, uh, these two, the Doctor and Jamie. Um, so it was important to, for me to choose Ben and Polly because I love them. Um, but so the love of hats and Jamie, two very good choices, two things I didn't choose. So after a moment of uh, where it looked like in episode two, uh, I might uh, emerge from this with some honours. Uh, sadly not. Um, I've, uh, uh, I've much chance of winning this. <laughs> as I have a finding a tin of tartan paint. Um, well, look, we got through the Highlanders. Uh, I think, uh, I hope that the next Patrick Troughton story I do is one with moving pictures. In fact, a couple have been chosen. Uh, I do have some more missing episodes to come. Uh, at the moment, I haven't got many new series uh, episodes to come, so I might have to, um, I might have to ask around for some younger people. I've asked quite a lot of young fans, and they say yes, and and they they haven't got back to me. So um, anyway, I'll keep flinging it out there. Uh, I've got, as I record this, there's a couple of weeks to go till Christmas. I think you will hear this uh, well after Christmas. So happy New Year to you all! Uh, thanks for joining me in Bonnie Scotland. Who knows where we'll be next? Uh, but for now, uh, awa ye goo. <laughs> be on your way. Ta ta. I think you'll find. I think you'll find. I think you'll find.
think you're fine. I think you're fine. I think you're fine. Well, I may have lost the competition uh, for this particular instalment of Happy Times and Places where I was trounced by Peter Ware, but I think I'm even Stevens in the I think you'll find stakes because David Garth was married to Geraldine Newman, who played Hilda in ever-decreasing circles. However, I made a boo-boo. I'd, I'd initially thought that the the stuff on the the little singular boat, not the the Annabelle, but the little the little paddle boat, was on film. So I had a look between episodes, and uh, I'd, I'd sort of misread the the filming, which I thought had just taken place on the Annabelle. So because it seemed a bit of an ambitious studio set to me. Um, and then having said that, I was filled with doubt. So I went back and checked and I was right first time, but I was wrong with what I said, therefore, in the broadcast that uh, uh, the filming was also, it wasn't just the, the boat and the outside stuff. It was the little paddle boat, the dock, the dock stuff. All of that with the water was filmed, which I would have been, I was surprised that uh, if it hadn't been because of the amount of water and the nature of the set. So I was right, then I was wrong. And now I'm right again. Um, <laughs> oh, that's life. So um, there we go. Uh, I think you'll find uh, uh, I've been both right and wrong at exactly the same time. And hello again, everybody. I did go back to have a look at Jamie's entrance. And of course, it's all in the script. He sort of hangs back and Ben opens the TARDIS and... Polly drags him in, but of course there aren't really any telesnaps of, of that. In fact, the only people we see in the telesnaps are, are, are Troughton and Michael Craze, and it's all covered in the dialogue in the barn. So uh, that was clearly um, rewritten um, because it was studio. So it, uh, you know, they had a they had a while between uh, the, the the filming in the studio in which to get that scene in order, and presumably in the original, Jamie had uh, instead gone off to, uh, you know. Can continue the battle, or it would have been quite. A, it would have been, would have been a pretty tricky end for him. Uh, although, well, or even he might not have even got that far. He might have stayed on the Annabelle, uh, and all of the uh, subsequent stuff was to, would have taken place without him. Yes, that's probably more likely. I don't know. One of those two things. Anyway, yes, it's not as cursory as I thought, uh, because it all, all the uh, all the explanation about Jamie coming aboard the TARDIS takes place in in the barn. But uh, somebody was gassing during that. Who could that have been? Uh, anyway, happy to clear that up. So you don't need to tweet me or send me an email or write me a letter or kidnap my children and demand an apology for being slightly vague about a fact. Ta-ta! Thank you so much for listening to Happy Times and Places, presented by me, Toby Haydock. My special guest was Peter Ware, deputy editor of Doctor Who magazine, who can be found on Twitter at Percy Ivor Woo. Thanks to the patrons who make this podcast possible, who include Ruben Herfindahl, Peter Harness, Rob Leonard, Stephen Moffat, Richard Straw, David, who I think wants to remain anonymous, Jenny at Blue Box 99, Paul Carrington, Paul Crook, Peter Crocker, Rob Dawson, John Deere, Chris Dunford Kelk, Chris Fone, Jason Gorman, Siobhan Galichon, Ian Key, Joe Llewellyn, Darren Mackay, Barry Platt, Luke Atkins, Peter Adamson, Will Brooks, Peter Burns, Rick Byatt, 
Alex Kafajoglu, Paul Carnahan, Andy Case, Richard Chalk, John Curley, Mark Dakin, and Gary Gillett. The music for this podcast is by Dave Gates, and the artwork is by Dylan Patterson. If you too would like to become a patron, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydoke. It starts from as little as £3 a month, and you get bonus material and early releases, uh, and you even get a 10% discount if you join for a whole year in one go. Uh, if you can't or don't want to do Patreon, that's fine. You can go to ko-fi.com forward slash Toby Haydoke and do a one-off donation if you're so inclined. But you know what? Neither of those things as important as you just carrying on listening, downloading and telling your friends if you like this. And if you really like it, perhaps you could give us a five star rating at all of your podcast outlets and perhaps even write a couple of lines or two of a review. That sort of thing really, really helps with algorithms and getting word about this out there and uh, costs you nothing. But it's priceless to me. Thank you so much. I'm on Twitter, at Toby Haydock. These podcasts have their own Twitter feed, at Haydock Podcasts. I also have a page on Facebook where I detail releases and clips and all sorts of other things. And you can follow my blog at www.tobyhaydock.com. And if you want to see that I'm actually real and don't exist just as a force of my own will, look behind the mask uh, and onto the comedy stage of Excess Malarkey Comedy Club in Manchester every Tuesday night at 8pm. I'm the resident MC. Come and see me there. <laughs>